Kyle Sondland and Herbert Konings are founding partners of Security Token Group. All opinions expressed by them or guests on this podcast are solely their opinions and do not represent the views of Security Token Group or its subsidiaries. You should not take any opinion expressed on the show as a specific inducement to make a particular investment or follow any investment strategy. This podcast is for informational purposes only. Welcome back to the Security Token Show, hosted by Kyle Sondland and myself, Herwig Konings. This week, we'll be discussing the topic of collateralized lending with digital assets. We'll cover the mechanics behind a popular mechanism in decentralized finance, or what is commonly called as DeFi by the growing community, and how it can benefit investors and issuers alike. But of course, before we get into that, we'll stick to the usual structure. First, our two companies of the week for making headlines last week for breaking new ground in the security token industry, followed by the industry news from last week, new offerings that came out, the secondary trading market report. And then finally, finishing with our thoughts on DeFi, lending, and more. Please, Kyle, lead us off. Who's your company that caught your attention this week? Well, this week, a major institutional player makes my company of the week, Herwig. I'm talking about NASDAQ, the second largest exchange in the world, who just recently announced a partnership with former company of the week of mine just from a few weeks ago, R3, to build infrastructure for institutional-grade assets. So the head of digital assets for NASDAQ commented in an interview regarding this partnership, and at the end of the article, he has a quote that got me, in particular, very excited. He says, quote, New types of financial and non-financial marketplaces for trading digital representations of physical assets and certificates will be created. Their participants will be able to track and trade assets easily through their entire life cycle by operating on a harmonized shared platform. Not only will they enjoy a high level of transparency, but they also have reduced friction because there will be no need to reconcile data between multiple participants. Many different networks will be created across the globe, built on an array of distributed ledger technologies. Again, standards are key, and once interoperability is achieved, we will likely see some consolidation over the longer term. And this quote is a huge deal. I think it backs up a lot of the things that we've been saying for months now, and I think that it's going to be really important to break this down just a little bit. The first piece that got me excited here is he's talking about high levels of transparency and reduced friction and efficiencies in the process. And if that doesn't sound like something that came right out of our mouths, it actually should, because it's something that we talked about just a couple episodes ago in terms of of automating the the compliance standards, as well as talking about settlement and, and clearing for a lot of these transactions. He perfectly echoes that sentiment, totally understands exactly where these advantages are, which is huge validation. This is NASDAQ we're talking about here. This is a huge, huge industry player, and he is an executive at the level of the head of digital assets there. He is spearheading this operation for NASDAQ. And then secondly, that second final piece there, saying that there will be different networks created across the globe and that building standards are key as well as finding interoperability. And again, another point that we just keep harping on, that it will be crucial for industry players to be working together to find standards that we can all agree on, whether that's defining security tokens, something that, again, Herwig and I have strived to do over weeks and months now, whether it's it's 
finding technology that can collaborate and work together across jurisdictions, between investor types, and again, in collaborating with compliance and regulatory standards. And then finally, this other piece that we may have discussed, I think, a couple months ago is this final sentence here where he says, we will likely see some consolidation over the longer term. And this was one of my future predictions, I think in our 2019-2020 future predictions episode, that when this industry continues to scale, I think we both agreed, Herwig, that we would see some, some consolidation in the marketplace and exchange space. We noted specifically in the tech bubble how there were, I think, 11 or 12 different acquisitions between NASDAQ and the NYSE of smaller time exchanges that were acquired to kind of form that strong trading base and liquidity pool that's needed for exchanges to have that, that trading balance. And so he again confirms here not only that we need interoperability, not only that there's benefits that are clear for NASDAQ in terms of leveraging this technology, but also kind of hints at potentially, you know, consolidation and maybe NASDAQ is one of those companies that, again, as they did in 2000, may prepare to to explore what pieces of this puzzle might be beneficial for them to have under their one roof. And certainly, R3 is breaking great ground by working with them, and maybe they're even a target for NASDAQ in the future. So because of all of these things, because of their positive stance, because of how quickly they're moving forward and how public and outspoken they've been in driving our industry forward and helping to define all of the benefits that we have been saying for months and months now, NASDAQ is my company of the week. Amazing choice, Kyle. I think we've all been waiting for that episode where NASDAQ was going to make company of the week. Second largest you know, exchange in the world. Obviously, a major, major deal when they're signing on to digital securities and security tokens. And as you pointed out, they're, they're keenly aware of the issues that are being served in the space right now. And I'm sure that they are tackling those with R3 uh, and eventually going to be rolling out more and more products and services around this. So that is huge. It's extremely exciting. We've kind of always known under the radar that that's NASDAQ was interested in exploring it. But this is as proof as any publicly now that they are they're going after this, which is super exciting. Exciting. Congratulations to NASDAQ and R3 on their partnership there. Very exciting stuff there. Um, but Herwig, what, what company uh, really caught your eye this week? Which one uh, won your award? Well, listeners, my company of the week is another one of those quiet movers in this space that I think we may see more and more of popping out. And in this case, I'm referring to the partnership announcement between gold tokenization provider Cash and custody provider on-chain custodium. And I bet most of our listeners haven't heard of either company, Kyle, so I'll be very clear. My company of the week is the custody provider, on-chain custodian, because they are both custodying and also insuring the gold-backed tokens. So let's dig into that just a little bit. Cash is a company out of Singapore that is licensed to mint and sell precious metals in the country and has set up a tokenization platform and a blockchain explorer that they call GramChain to track the gold, as they say, in a proof-of-reserve system that does asset tracking to store data as standardized events. These gold tokens then are not exactly security tokens, but actually stable coins. So they are gold-pegged tokens that are fully redeemable by the owner. Literally, this service cash will deliver you and send your gold if you want to redeem your tokens. And that's all very cool. 
But ultimately, on-chain custodian, I think, is the one trailblazing here because I think that they are the ones truly unlocking the gold-backed token investment opportunity. By providing custody and insurance, they can onboard institutional clients and offer a completely digital gold-buying experience for the investor. And furthermore, they also enable their customers to use their custodied assets to make additional money by placing them into digital investment products, which of course is our main topic that we're going to get into later on the show. So both firms are from Singapore, which also continues to show the region's prowess in this space. But it's really worth mentioning also that Anchin Custodian is backed by Sequoia, among other notable VCs. Needless to say, I'm very impressed, enough to say, Kyle, that Anchin Custodian is my company of the week. That's a great choice. I think it's exciting to see the tokenization of these real-world assets because it's something that is feasible. It can get done. It's something that's easier for, I think, maybe more traditional market participants to wrap their head around, right? The idea of a, a kind of a digital gold or something along those lines. And then providing some of those collateralized debt products that we'll talk about later in the episode, I think is a tremendous use case and, and is a great way uh, to really start to dip your toes into some of these more technical assets or, or, or mechanisms without necessarily needing to risk anything or, or do anything that, that's not familiar. So great company of the week. Very exciting. Um, I think it's an awesome choice. We'll dig into more of that for sure later in the episode. But with that, I think we can start off the news cycle, which we're going to kick things off with the SEC. So, of the five commissioners led by Jay Clayton here uh, in the SEC, Commissioner Hester Pierce is well known to be the most crypto-friendly. So, that's great, but unfortunately, her term is set to end next month in June. The proponent proposed a crypto-friendly safe harbor for crypto projects in the past and has been seen as the most educated of the bunch when it comes to advocating and explaining blockchain and crypto products. Though she joked on a recent webcast that even though she th- she is called the crypto mom, she thinks that the whole commission should be full of crypto parents. <laughs> and she's definitely right about that. I mean, at the end of the day, uh, it's important that the entire SEC gets behind her, especially if she were to the part. And on this webcast, it's also worth noting that she shared some further insight regarding stable coins and the challenge that they also present to regulators. She says, quote, stable coins also pose some interesting legal questions. Not only do we have to think about whether they are securities, but in the U.S., at least we have to think about how they interact with other parts of our securities laws. So her comment makes me think that stable coins still face legal uncertainty here in the U.S., despite their recent surge in demand, and that for sure there is a overlying question about their potential of being securities or how they interact with securities products. Regardless, it's not clear, and that's certainly not a good thing. But one thing is for sure, the crypto mom will do her best to bring in positive, constructive input while she's still there, and let's hope her seat is not assigned to anyone else, because that means she gets to continue on her post in a new term. So keep up the great work, Commissioner Hester Pierce. Congratulations on all of the work that you've done, and hopefully you get to continue it. And speaking of SEC regulators, their pressure seems to have successfully forced Telegram 
to react, uh, at least officially postpone, <laughs> right, the release of their Telegram uh, issued tokens, the, the Gram tokens, at least for a whole year till 2021. So it was originally sc- scheduled to, re- to be issued for around now, but the firm will be releasing the tokens uh, a whole year later as a result of their SEC troubles. In addition, the company is also offering a refund to investors, a, a positive mood for those who want to try to get out, especially among this economic crisis. But if you decide to wait till next year for the company to potentially get approval from what they are dubbing as relevant regulators, then you'll receive the tokens at the original purchase price uh, on the issuance date in 2021. Though, I, you know, I got to say, I suppose nothing really warrants them from changing their prior, this prior to the final issuance. So we'll, we'll see what ends up happening. But if you want to refund, your options are either to get 72% of your total investment back now, a loss, or potentially receive 110% of your original investment sometime before next year, they say, again, if you decide to refund, not receive the tokens. So, I mean, remember, there was over a billion and a half raised in this ICO. Uh, that was well over two years ago now. And there's probably a good chance that you know someone debating which option to choose right now. Maybe even you yourself uh, were an investor. So definitely an interesting, you know, option for for what to to take. You know, take a ten percent gain over a few years, or take a loss, or take the tokens that when they come out, uh, if they ever come out. So you know, the company continues onwards as the Messenger app does surpass now a half billion downloads. Uh, and makes the Telegram issuance, to me at least, look a, a little bit similar and starting to look a lot like Libra, which is, of course is a, a threat that uh, people already perceive. So we'll see if Telegram starts to kind of hit, hit that similar status. And moving over to Japanese regulators, the FSA has acknowledged two industry groups as officially recognized self-regulatory organizations, the Japan STO Association and the Japan Virtual Currency Exchange Business Association. They're both recognized as SROs for derivative transactions and security token offerings of crypto assets. The JVCEA, by the way, is going to be subsequently renamed to the Japan Crypto Asset Trading Business Association. Association starting uh, last week. This is a really big deal because you know this gives the two organizations both the direct leadership and authority in the region on the respective of digital asset types and presumably a, a direct line of communication with the FSA as well. So you know this will further organize in Japan and shape Japan's security token ecosystem probably much faster than most other countries. Uh, there's a lot of notable people that are a part of the J- Japan SCSO Association, many of which are leading investment banks. And I think we can expect a lot from the country this year for STOs. And if you haven't had a chance to read my in-depth article about the rise of Japan's security token ecosystem over the last year, then I highly recommend you check that out on our Medium channel. We also saw several coverage articles on T0 last week. As we have been reporting several times on the show now, T0 plans to register its own broker-dealer ATS instead of relying on an existing broker-dealer's license like the Dinosaur uh, license currently, which, which it's currently operating with. They still also intend to support platforms like Dinosaur and other BDs with their, their T0 platform technology, but once they have their own ATS, which presumably will then take over the T0.com website, the whole 
infrastructure will be controlled in-house, which is definitely a big deal. And all of this recently got some nice coverage, both by Forbes and Coindesk uh, doing write-ups on it. The article, both the articles include CEO Sam Norsalehi saying that he expects T0 to complete their goal of registering an ATS by Q2 of this year. And honestly, let's hope that's the case because that may give T0 the latitude to do more of what it wants to do without third-party intervention. This might include potentially new listings and also the expectation, they say, that traditional stocks and crypto assets will also trade eventually on the platform. So let's see if they hit their target. We also saw an announcement from issuance platform Black Manta Capital Partners, which is currently hosting their Berlin Real Estate STO, which you can catch more info on in episode 34 of the show that Kyle broke down. But the company has recently partnered with Finoa to offer a third-party custody solution for investors. The press release, honestly, it doesn't offer much insight more than that, other than noting some funds and customers and a vague website for Finoa. Uh, But what we can defer from it is that the company offers military-grade, institutional-grade custody services for digital assets following German regulation. My guess is that they also cater to a lot of the institutional crypto investors in the region, and it seems like a good fit for Black Manta. Awesome partnership. And next up, we have an industry interview by STM, no less. The first interview of its kind, actually, it's with Darius Liu, who is the COO and co-founder of iStocks, which is, of course, the Singapore-based exchange that has been approved by the MAS. They conducted an STO, and they're already trading security tokens. You know, get all the juicy details about iStocks plans, Darius's outlook on the industry, and, of course, their global perspective on security tokens, all of that and more available on the STM blog, the first ever industry interview. And last but not least, the founder of CoreConX, uh, which is a fundraising platform, governance and issuance platform all in one from Canada, has some news for us. Oscar Joffrey has been an entrepreneur in the equity crowdfunding space, who's the, the CEO of CoreConX. He released an ebook in 2015 called Equity Crowdfunding 101. And now he is at it again with Digital Securities 101 five years later. It's an ebook, of course, dedicated to explaining security tokens. Quote, the book is for investors, shareholders, entrepreneurs, executives, board directors, broker dealers, regulators, transfer agents, and secondary market providers and provides step-by-step guides for everyone involved in private capital markets on what is needed for safe and responsible issuance and management of digital securities. Uh, definitely seems like they are encompassing and targeting everyone. This must be a, a very wide and encompassing uh, guide. I haven't had the chance to check it out myself, but I always support uh, especially industry organizations, but really anyone promoting education around security tokens. So really great to see that, that Oscar is at it yet again, this time with Digital Securities 101. So definitely we'll check that out. And if you're looking for kind of a beginner's guide, this may be for you. And that's it. That's all I have for the news cycle. Of course, all of the articles we discuss on the show, they're sourced from stomarket.com slash news. And they're always available there uh, to check out and engage with. Or if you want to check it out now, it's, of course, available for reference in the about description from wherever you're listening to. And with that, Kyle, I'm going to hand it over to you. Tell us about the upcoming events in the space. Yeah, I did a little dive into what seems to be all of our Zoom webinar events. Fortunately, 
while we are all self-quarantined, it does not mean that the world is stopping from revolving, and that does also mean that we will continue to have events. So let's dig into a couple of them. The first one being a virtual workshop um, from the Security Token Realized team. And that event is going to be around what role can digital securities play in helping the economy come out of the current crisis. And so this is an interesting event to talk about, you know, how we can reopen our doors post post coronavirus and post global shutdown. It does not have an, a date or time at this time. They actually have a link on their website that is included in the description where you can submit your inf- information if you're interested in, in attending the event. It looks like they may be gauging interest and trying to see what time works best for all attendees. So if you'd like to attend or you have some interest, click the link in the description, and I'm sure the team will reach out to you shortly to find a time that makes the most sense for everyone involved. So that's exciting. Moving forward, we have Solid Blocks Master Tokenization and Digital Securities for Real Estate web series. And so we've covered this one before. It is a 14-session webinar launching on May 12th, so next week. And it looks like they are charging $35 for the webinar. On the site, on the Eventbrite link, I'm not sure if it's $35 per lesson, which certainly sounds relatively pricey, um, or if it just appears that way on Eventbrite. But this event certainly does have a robust topic list and will have a lot of good content. So if you decide to pay, each webinar will also be on demand. So while they'll roll out each week kind of like an online course, uh, you can watch them in succession or binge them if you're interested in doing that as well. Moving on, we also have the tokenization of assets, which is the new financial opportunities for investors and issuers webinar. This is a free keynote on tokenization that's hosted by Mikobo, M-I-C-O-B-O, on May 13th at 12 p.m. EST. And so it features three speakers and three keynotes. The first one is Thomas Nagel, who will be covering legal framework around tokenization and what we can learn from the Liechtenstein example. Second will be Professor Dr. Philip Sander, Sandner, excuse me, and he will be covering the key takeaways and crucial points of the Liechtenstein Blockchain Act. And then finally, Lucas Fried will cover tokenization, liquidity, efficiency, and resiliency to improve the financial markets. So this does seem to have a Liechtenstein spin on it, which is exciting because they have been a, a active mover early in, in the security token industry and have been a leader in Europe. So definitely check that out if you got nothing to do. It's free, which is exciting. May 13th, also next week, 12 p.m. I'm sure it will have great content. And then finally, we have the Draper Gorin Home Digital Security Summit Virtual Edition. This is going to be on May 20th, so in two weeks, from 12 p.m. to 3 p.m. EST. So they are on the West Coast, but it will be shifted down three hours, 12 o'clock p.m. Um, noon in EST. I reached out to Alon to see what if we could get more information on this event because there seems to be just a TBA for details on the event description currently. He told me that they're looking to do an event with some bankers and and potentially some of their portfolio companies and to discuss the security token market. So if I can get you more information on that, I certainly will let you know as we get a little bit closer. But Draper Gornholm has hosted, you know, Crypto Invest Summit and and uh security token summits and and other in-person events and have done a good job. So I'm sure that event will be interesting as well. 
Moving on into the new security tokens and updates, we only have one security token to really discuss that's new. Uh, last week, I mentioned artist Ben Elliott's plan to tokenize his future art portfolio and sell it as a security token issued on the Ethereum blockchain. And this week, I'm bringing you a similar concept from a company called Art ID, which is essentially tokenizing art collections. And the platform has reported over a thousand pieces of art on their platform so far, and they want to facilitate the sales of these works. The offering is going to be a 5 million euro total cap, and it actually already reached its soft cap set at 580,000 euros already, so that's fantastic news. The token is planning to be a revenue sharing token, giving investors a percentage of the art sales on the platform, and it is unclear to me, based off of what I've read so far, if Art ID plans to be a licensed trading platform or just an issuance and investment platform, it seems like they, they do make some hints that there will be buying and selling, which suggests maybe more of a marketplace. Um, but I'm not quite sure yet, so I'll certainly keep you updated there. And I will mention and give a, a shout out to Stalker, S-T-O-K-R, which is the Luxembourg-based issuance and investment platform. This is a Stalker offering. So another Stalker deal. We've covered a few of their security token offerings over the last couple of weeks. And uh, and so congratulations to them and their team for, for just continuing to pump out the deal flow and helping these issuers realize their full opportunity. I think art especially is an exciting use case. It was something that was really thrown around early in the security token industry back in the day, but I think quickly became a relatively difficult industry to tackle just due to the high upfront costs of getting art that was in demand. You know, it's just these pieces can be very, very expensive, so it requires the, you know, a high amount of upfront capital. But perhaps some of these solutions, whether it's, it's individuals like Ben Elliott or firms like Art ID that can can help others and prove the model to the market and the rest of the world. So very exciting stuff. Art is interesting and it certainly is a very illiquid market that's not embraced the digital age yet. So best of luck to Art ID and others. Moving into the secondary market, we have the Security Token Market Report. They published the full trading summary for the month of April, which compiles every transaction worldwide and publishes statistics and data for citation and research. I have an article coming with more data analysis coming out later this week, so we'll cover this a little bit more on the next episode. But I do have a quick facts about the trading market over the last month that we found interesting when compiling this research uh, with me and my team. So first off, the total security token market cap at the close of April was $52,901,000, just about $53 million, which is down about 7.5% from the close in March. So it's, it's a little bit of a down month. We also see that with volume. We've covered it here on the podcast, but the total April trading volume um, was down 37 or 38% almost, from about 380000 to about 204000 So not, um, not super great there. But again, it's to be expected. The markets have been slower in April because of, of the, the global economic conditions. Then it's interesting to take a look at the exchanges and the market cap per exchange. And I wanted to highlight this specifically because this is the first month, at least that I can remember, but I think it's the first month since I've been tracking that Open Finance Network, the ATS based out of Chicago, actually has the largest market cap by exchange of or marketplace rather around the world. So Open Finance has overtaken T0 based on the closing prices in April, 
as the largest marketplace for security tokens in the world. They have a market cap of $23.9 million, with T0 following closely behind at $23 million. So they're about 900000 off. Some of that has been shaved off in the past couple of weeks from T0's price declining. There's also some question marks around Open Finance's market cap solely because a few of the tokens are very, very illiquid and have very small test trades that can boost the market cap because if a, a test trade is trading at, at 100% of the previous price, but it's only $10 in trades, it sometimes can be difficult to calculate what that market cap should be. Um, but regardless of that, based off of our closing prices, Open Finance is the largest by market cap marketplace around the world. Open Finance had about $16,000 in trading volume over the month of April versus T0's $125,000. So T0 is almost 10 times more active than Open Finance, which I think maybe has a, has a more... Um, is more indicative of potentially the health of, of the marketplaces, but they also are both followed behind by Uniswap, as we've mentioned before, which actually leads the pack in terms of issued security tokens. They have six on their platform, or seven actually, I think now. So seven security tokens on their platform, which is the largest by number of any exchange around the world. And their market cap is just around three and a half million compiled of real estate properties, and the Mount Pelerin equities. Their volume this month was about 60000 so about half of T0. Um, and uh, that, that's looking very, very strong. Certainly by market cap, their volume is nice. Finally, the best performing security token of the month of April was the Mount Pelerin equity token, closing at $3.85, which was almost 14% up this month in April, or last month in April. And the worst performing security token of April was T0 at around $1.11, which was down about 17% in the month of April. Um, And it does contribute to the market cap thing that we talked about earlier. In the month of April, we also, just just as a note from Security Token Market, did add a new security token and a new security token exchange with live trading data. That was Startup Bootcamps Equity and an exchange based out of Amsterdam. So now we're up to 14 total assets and four marketplaces around the world. So very, very exciting news. The industry continues to grow despite the market's uh, relative waning this month. We, We do see it continue to scale. And now covering the last week, let's talk about the first week of May and the total STO market cap over the last week since our last podcast episode. We're talking 50.9 million. So we are continuing to come down just a little bit. Um, T0 and some other huge movers this week do continue to tumble. Um, both T0 and Blockchain Capital continue their slide with T0 nearing about a dollar. So it closed at just about a dollar five on Monday, down 30% in the last two weeks. BCAP continues that same pattern with about a $15,000 sell off, crushing the price from $1.50 two weeks ago to just a dollar on Monday. So both have really not taken the last weeks very well. Um, and, and it's something very interesting to watch over the next couple of weeks and see how these tokens perform. In terms of other tokens, as we've seen consistently now, the real estate tokens are the most productive. They're generating both equity value as well as daily dividend value. And I'm hearing that these tokens are continuing to sell out in their primary sales. And the secondary performances of of each of these tokens are really backing up that rumor. Uh, Five out of six are in the black today. 
just Monday, um, which and the most unusual thing, honestly, seems to be that one is even in the red. They they continue to go up um, one to two percent. They're not they're not going crazy. It's not up twenty or thirty percent, but they're all up. I think five to ten percent or so um, over the month of April, and and really have been doing well. Again, on top of their daily dividends that are, are being paid directly to their investors' bank accounts via stablecoin. Kyle, I want to give a quick shout out to Realty uh, because uh, they hit some milestones recently. They they announced over fifty thousand dollars in in rental payments to investors, over a million dollars in, in overall tokenized real estate on Ethereum there, and finally they did a record sale for one of their properties. They closed it out within ten days. So congratulations Ooh. to that team. They're doing a lot of good stuff. They're doing really good stuff. It seems like investors are interested and love to participate. They're, they're performing well. They're structured very well from what I understand and from, from the deep dives. We've taken a look into the structuring, and uh, I can't wait to see how they continue to scale that operation. It is important to note, just remember, that only non-U.S. investors, I believe, can currently invest in these tokens. It doesn't seem like they're, they are open to U.S. investors at this time. So I do think it's, it's non-U.S. international only. But if you're an international listener, definitely check out Realty Trading on Uniswap. I think if you're accredited in the U.S., you can also participate. Definitely go check it out. Okay. Yeah, definitely you know, consult your, uh, your own people and, and definitely make sure you're doing your own research before participating. And with that, Herwig, I think it's time to, to move into our main topic. What, what are we looking at today? Well, as we discussed earlier, we're looking at you know, collateralized lending with digital assets. Uh, it's being brought into focus specifically because of a, a recent article that we caught on Cointelegraph, which discusses the, the hack that we talked about a little while ago, a few episodes ago, on LendF, which is the, the DeFi, the Decentralized Finance Lending Protocol, that was, of course, hacked, uh, exploited via an exploit several weeks ago. So as we reported on episode 40, the lending platform ultimately managed to recover roughly 23 million of the 25 million that was locked in the form of crypto in a smart contract tied to the Lendef protocol. Lendef managed to do this, actually, they managed to recover the funds by negotiating with the hacker after they were able to find a traceable IP related to the hack. So had the hacker not made this amateur mistake, they might have gotten away entirely. <laughs> but indeed, they, they managed to recover at least a good chunk, a majority of the, the funds. But the article simply spotlights you know, a discussion that we, we ought to be having around DeFi, as the Cointelegraph author Andrew Rosso puts it. Um, so ultimately, the article calls for a focus on security, user trust, and that it shouldn't be rushed out code in test cases like this. And interestingly, also singles out Ethereum as non-scalable and that lending protocols are now seeking alternative solutions. DeFi and lending protocols like MakerDAO, Compound, and LendF have been growing uh, in 2019 and, and in 2020 in surging demand, especially with Andreessen Horowitz backing several of them. And we figured now on the show is about time we cover the subject, especially with this rise of collateralized lending products. You brought up some really interesting topics there, Herwig. 
I mean, I agree that this topic has long deserved an episode, and we may actually warrant additional content as we explore more specific facets of what decentralized finance means and how it can be applied. I think we're seeing many of these protocols following what might be the startup mantra of, quote, move fast and break things, right, which rationalizes the idea behind focusing on growth and scale while figuring out how to put out the fires later. And I think that some firms are seeing firsthand that reckless development and short-term tunnel vision in the financial industry can have devastating consequences if it's not properly managed. That being said, decentralized finance mechanisms are revolutionizing the way that we handle traditional finance transactions and processes. So, um, you know, Herwig, if you could do all, all of our listeners a favor and explain the growth of this movement and how collateralized lending works, I think that would be really helpful. I will try and do my best, Kyle. So first, I think it's important to walk through why collateralized lending is very interesting from an investor perspective. So you know, the ICO fallout left a lot of people holding crypto. And the thing about crypto investors is they almost never actually take money back out. I mean, convert their crypto into cold, hard cash. This meant that now a lot of people were holding onto crypto, looking for projects to invest in, realizing that ICOs uh, no longer offer decent opportunities to invest in. And this is what's really important about the tokenization movement, all right? By bringing assets on chain, you can start making instant settlements as we've covered using atomic swaps in last week's episode. So I think it's important to see how that actually works in, in a very simple example. So let's use cash. If I want to go make a purchase using physical cold hard cash, I need to go take my cash and go to a store to then trade that for a good. If we got a little smarter, maybe I decided to get a debit card, which basically is me saying that I'm going to use a third-party representation of my cold hard cash, which is now sitting with that third party, aka the bank. But still, I'm only limited to stores that can accept my debit card or really my financial institution's certification that I have the money. So let's move up and go with investments. When you do an investment today, you're typically going to wire money. So instead of giving cold, hard cash in large quantities or using a debit card, you'll do a direct transfer with your institution. In this case, the wire may go directly to your investment. And that depends on you know the reciprocating financial institution to authorize that investment came through with, from the wire. And similarly, with a brokerage account, the third-party broker-dealer receives your wire and also signs off that they now have custody of your money. Now we can instruct that broker, of course, to place the money into all kinds of investments on the stock market and other investment products. And of course, in return, or at least in principle, we would get stock certificates. Uh, But of course, we know that's not actually happening. But in in principle, we are getting our interest in the investment products via stock certificates. And the reason I'm bringing up this example is that when you take your cold, hard cash you, you can't really just convert it via uh, into a stock certificate. You have to go through this whole process. Whereas if I were to take my cold hard cash and convert it into a stable coin, that stable coin can now let you digitally purchase or invest in anything programmatically and instantly that is also 
digital. So imagine that for a second. Why physically walk to that store? Why rely on a third-party bank or broker? Why wouldn't you just take your money and make it digital and then start instantly transacting? It's naturally the future, at least we believe. And for those of us who have been early adopters, uh, at least in the blockchain space, enough to have created some kind of wealth on chain in the form of cryptocurrencies or stable coins or even security tokens, they all have that power now to instantly transact, which I would say is pretty darn cool. So all it takes is physical cash and finding a middleman to give you a digital representation in some sort of digital asset, and now you have on-chain capital. But let's go back now to our ICO fallout in 2019. Some of our crypto community friends looked for additional ways to grow their digital portfolio. After all, your crypto doesn't just need to sit in an account somewhere anymore. It can be put to work just like a bank might offer with a savings account or a broker might offer with an investment product. So many of these individuals who own stable coins and crypto wealth looked for ways to put that to work and collateralized loans became a new industry as a result. So using my example of the company of the week with cash, cash enables me to get a stable coin backed by gold and will reflect the price of gold in the gold markets, of course. So let's say for simplicity's sake that we buy $100 worth of CGT cash gold tokens that we now have in a wallet. So great, we can leave it there and let the price of gold go up and maybe I convert it back into US dollars when the price is right and I want to harvest my investment. Or maybe in this case, on-chain custodian would enable us to make 10% on our CGT tokens while they're just sitting in the wallet. How does that work? There could be several security tokens representing real-world assets that offer an immediate swap back to CGT gold tokens at any time, which would allow us to get our security tokens instantly back to gold, making this an investment that we can kind of transfer into something else. On-chain custodian could also offer to custody the gold while they lend out against it, making the CGT tokens collateral. So in this way, if on-chain custodian was able to lend, say, at a 15%, the cold hard cash, we can get 10% for the CGT tokens or $10 on our $100 while they keep five for themselves for managing the lending side of things. So if gold now also doubled in price while we were lending, that means we would get both equity yield from the gold rising and lending yield from our, our token collateral. All to say, at least, that this is much better than your cash just being cash in your pocket linked to the value of the U.S. dollar. So now MakerDAO and Compound and others have set up various lending protocols. MakerDAO, for example, enables you to use their native stablecoin currency DAI as a token to peg cryptos to and then start trading or borrowing on them via smart contracts and atomic swaps. As the underlying cryptos gain value or the DAI currency gains value, which is staked and consumed by the Maker. DAO protocol, so does the investor or custody agent. In this way, actually, in some cases, you might be able to find interest-free loans because the expectation is the value of the underlying crypto will go up. And with enough collateral or even not enough collateral is put into place, it makes lenders start to get very interested at crypto assets and the potential possibilities of collateralized lending. I think there's something like roughly $1 billion in, in total that, that's been put through the various protocols. And since all of this is done on-chain, of course, the term decentralized finance emerged as a potential solution to creating an alternative and better financial infrastructure than what we have today, or 
what if you ask me, my perspective, crypto 2.0, since ICOs didn't hold and Bitcoin hasn't reached true adoption, this seems like a next value proposition for crypto. Kyle, I just blabbered a whole lot about DeFi and collateralized lending with digital assets. Tell me, what are your thoughts on this? How do you see this mixing with security tokens? It's a nice breakdown. It seems like the collateralized lending space has supremely benefited from having the loan's full life cycle originated on-chain, as it allows the full contract between both parties to be tracked and executed programmatically via smart contracts. The benefits there, obviously, we've detailed them before, even in my companies a week earlier, but we're talking about efficiencies, we're talking about reducing friction, we're talking about making it cheaper and faster. I like the idea of lending contracts on current holdings. It's not a whole lot different than traditional brokerages today that will actually execute derivative contracts on your current stock holdings, except for in the traditional method, they keep the entire profit. So you actually have no idea they're doing it. You don't get any exposure to it. And and so it's honestly kind of a, a asymmetric deal. In this example, her investors gain a passive return just by offering their stake as collateral. And so I like that idea of having it be an opt-in service or maybe something kind of like an industry standard for a reserve ratio to prevent the lenders from over-leveraging, as it does seem to be a natural incentive as they seem to increase profits. So that's kind of the one thing that, that I might bring back um, or, or make sure that we tether a little bit. Collateralized lending itself is an amazing concept, though, and it's such a great opportunity for investors around the world to earn a passive income on their current assets, whether, as we've talked about, it's cash and equivalents or even ownership in equities, debt, or hard assets. I think it's a strong business model for the lending facilitator as well to capitalize on the outstanding float of assets currently custodied. And with a larger lending pool, smaller debtors are more likely to receive funds at a manageable rate, which is good for the economy and for small businesses. The only other feeling that I have is a strong one against the idea of under-collateralized loans. As we really begin to stress test this technology and evaluate the viability and feasibility of fully on-chain lending, peer-to-peer collateralized lending on a massive scale has a very slim margin for error as the default risk can collapse the entire system. And so this risk increases tremendously if the lenders begin to stake fractional collateral to increase their lending portfolio. This puts investors' capital at risk and is something that I'm not a huge fan of, at least until we can get some sort of insurance on the state capital, or again, at least until we can prove this concept on a massive scale. I think that we may be unfortunately biting off more than we can chew if we start to, to do fractionalized um, collateral and things like that. And we have seen some of those pop up in terms of some solutions, some just in theory, um, some using synthetic derivatives, which again, I just think is is an interesting idea and something fun to, to discuss in theory. But until we can really prove the concept on a, on a big scale in, a, in an MVP, mo- a minimum viable product sort of fashion, I, I do think that that's a little bit risky and it's not quite something that I'm interested in covering a whole lot, to be honest. I think that's completely fair to say, Kyle. I definitely worry about that too. I mean, per the term decentralized, any actor in the space will have a lot of freedom to try new models of finance out, of course, using smart contract technology. But as we saw in the previous financial crisis, lending to just about anyone and not requiring a lot of collateral from the borrower can be a recipe for disaster. (laughs) So if DeFi doesn't want to get tainted with the same bad name as the ICO and crypto community had garnered from the regulators, I think 
they need to be very cognizant of doing things ethically and providing safe practices to prevent any future blowups on top of already hacks, right? So definitely uh, food for thought. And with that, I think that's all the time we have on this topic. It concludes our show. So I want to thank you listeners, of course, for tuning in once again. Always remember that you can give Kyle or I feedback via Twitter or LinkedIn directly or engage with the community on stomarket.com. Catch you next week.